The room where it happens. The room where it happens. I know I sound like an angel when I sing. I get that. I'm sure that's exactly what hopped into your brain. But it is the song I think of, that one from Hamilton, when I think about decisions being made in most organizations. It's done on a different floor. It's done in a room that most of us don't get to enter. It's the same people making these decisions, usually all the time. How inclusive is that? Well, that's the question we're going to propose today with our guest, and we're going to dig into a way of maybe rethinking how we approach decision-making and having a seat at that table. Hold on. I'm Russell Lolliker, and this is Relationships at Work, the employee experience and workplace culture podcast. Thanks for being here. Love the time we spend together. I I look forward to it every week, and I look forward to having guests that you might find interesting and maybe make you go back to work and think, you know what, I'm going to try something a little different this time. And today, no different. With today's guest, he brought up this idea about being more inclusive in decision-making. I was going back and forth with him on LinkedIn about no surprises at work, in that people understanding why decisions are made, how they impact the organization, how they impact individuals, should always be communicated. And that grew into a conversation about decision-making. Have a think about those decisions and how they're made in your organization. Same people, same room. That room where it happens? Nope, not going to sing again. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. But what I am going to do is talk to our amazing guest and maybe help us think, hey, maybe we could be a little bit more inclusive. I'm hoping you make that exact sentence happen in your brain. show, it's Clemens Reddick. I'm going to first tell you why he's awesome. He's the National Practice Lead in Organization Performance for Grant Thornton uh, LLP. He's the founding director of the Great Performances Group, a business growth consultancy, including around workplace cultures and values. Ding, 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 because that's kind of what we're going to be talking about a bit today. And also he's an author, Great Performances, the small business script for the 21st century. He's a writer. He's a university instructor. But today it's all about having a seat at the table. And I kind of want to understand what that means and maybe ways we can think about it a little bit more inclusively. Thanks for being on the show, Clemens. Really appreciate you being here. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, you had recently shared a post of mine, which was all around the no surprises rule, which I know we both agree on this. Yes. That no one in an organization should ever be caught blindsided by a decision or an action that impacts you. Correct. Both on the same page. Ideally correct. (laughs) Fair. Nothing is ever black and white, but as a rule, it's a good one. As a principle, yes, that is spot on. It started an interesting conversation, which is why I'm thrilled you're here today. We started talking about this thing called argue out, and I want to get into that in a bit. But first, I want to talk about having a seat at the table, because that's where it was was sort of launched from. It got me interested, and I got the whole Hamilton song in my head right now, right? The whole, the room where it happens, that sort of thing. There's this room where decisions are made in an organization that people don't ever feel they have control over or how it impacts them or anything. So Mm -hmm. let's start by setting the table. See what I did there? 
Yes, yes, yes. Nicely, nicely, nicely done. <laughs> I should show you. I should. I like starting charming at the beginning and then just go for yes. There. Yeah, so, then go go for the meat. Yeah, I got it. Got it. <laughs> what is it meant to have a seat at the table in an organization? Let's define that first. Sure. I mean, the short answer is it's you know the the, the most hated of all consulting responses, which is it depends. Because it, that can mean many things, but I think what it means metaphorically is that, of course, if we're looking at an organization of, you know, anything more than six or eight people, anything above that size, it, it's not possible to have a seat literally at the table for every major decision made. And in fact, a lot of people don't even want to be in every conversation where every decision gets made. Uh, and certainly once you get, you know, up to anything you would describe as enterprise scaled, that whole question just becomes humorous. There, there is, there is, there is literally not a table large enough to seat anybody. So everybody. So I think, I think really from, from the perspective of an analogy, using the table as an analogy, as a place where people come to, to sit together, to discuss and to arrive at decisions I think what we're really interested in there is, is how much people are in the uh, sort of the stream of, and I mean like the stream, like a river of the information that flows through an organization and how much of an influence they have over the flow of that information and, and how much they have the ability to, to extend the metaphor a little bit further to, to kind of sample um, you know, that information is a flows by them. Like, am I aware of, you know, in some sense, it's literally the temperature, the content, um, the speed of change, uh, all those kinds of things. And, and then that loops back to the comment you made in the introduction around this idea that you and I both share very strongly, which is that uh, there are no good surprises in business. Even good surprises are still bad surprises because the, the, the ideal target condition we're aiming for all the time is, is complete transparency that, you know, doesn't really matter what decision gets made and the impact it has on one, one should always see it coming. It's fundamentally about awareness first and foremost, and that sense of being included and feeling like you, in that sense, it almost speaks to that sense of belonging in a culture. And then also to your earlier point around um, decisions that impact you, wanting to have some kind of say in that, perhaps even more than just even being aware it's coming, actually having a say in it. So who typically is seated at that table? Well, traditionally, if you're going to use, you know, a, a, a traditionally structured Western type hierarchical organization, it's going to be folks at the C-suite, senior managers, divisional leaders, general managers, any, anybody with some kind of title and typically with an office, like there were certain things that accrued to those positions. You could kind of tell who those people were. They tended to be white, they tended to be male, they tended to be senior, so on and so forth, right? They, they fit a certain profile and as, as individuals, and, and that has its own baggage that comes with this conversation. Yeah, and they had, they had the official power to, uh, to make certain kinds of decisions based on how, you know, their job descriptions and governance in the organization, how that's structured and so on. Not to dig too deep into it, but what is that baggage from those typical decision makers at an organization that we keep going back to the same people over and over again, the same hierarchical, the same people. So what is the, the baggage or the, the downside of oh those Lord. people? <laughs> How long is this podcast? <laughs> elevator pitch, elevator pitch. Elevator, go. elevator pitch is that, you know, we, we, we can't skirt 
comfortably around this idea that uh, you know senior management and the decision making authority in in organizations uh, generally has rested with the the white male majority of North America, North America, Europe, whatever you want to call it, and 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 we see that in you know in the tech industry, in the C suite, in venture capital, and so on. Like it doesn't matter kind of what sort of 21st century lens we look at it through, you know, it's Black History Month as we're speaking right here. You, you can't turn around but be confronted with the fact that the, you know, to, to use the metaphor now of, of being at the table, the damn table has been too small and too selective for decades and decades and decades, if not, you know, as far back in history as we want to go. And one of the really awesome things is the degree to which that is being challenged in, in really interestingly disruptive and and really powerful ways now so what is an example of good decision making what's what's a powerful what's powerful in your eyes well you know from my world is when when i talk you know you, you said earlier on that i lead our national practice at grant thornton in organizational performance and, and in that we have a certain npo or not-for-profit kind of area and some municipal and, and and government work that we do but by and large it is uh main street uh, mid-market privately held businesses. And so in that world, a, a an effective or powerful decision is one that leads to positive transformation and growth and sustainability. When we in weave into it or knead into it like bread dough, uh, you know, the, the piece that we're talking about here, it is also one in which all of the stakeholders uh, in this whole idea, I think really interestingly in some ways captured by this concept called stakeholder capitalism, one in which the, the stakeholders who are impacted by or who could have a really positive impact on because of their backgrounds and, and their perspectives and so on, on that decision. So because you can also imagine an extremely effective decision that meets the first condition, which is it is a decision that leads to the sustainable, profitable, uh, you know, health and growth of the organization, but that is still unnecessarily exclusive. And, and it does not have enough people at the table and, and, and some of the people who might be impacted by what for a majority or a certain group of people or a certain perspective uh, might be really positive, but could have uh, negative impacts on others or at the very least, you know, change the way they work or make their job more complicated or something. And they weren't at the seat of that table when globally, yes, was it a good decision for the business? Yes, it was. Uh, was it a good decision carefully considered in a way that it was arrived at that included every stakeholder? No, not necessarily. That gets me into what we talked about in our discussion prior to the podcast, which is your idea around and in, in your, in your work around argue in versus argue out decision-making. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you mentioned argue in being the one you're trying to get away from. So let's, let's define argue in decision-making, which I think is what you're kind of, kind of pointing to. That language uh, arose in work that we do sometimes around project postmortems. It'll be a, a major digital transformation, management transformation. Uh, it could be even a large infrastructure or, or capital project or something like that. And they want a third party that doesn't have baggage to go into the organization and, and check on two elements, both the stakeholders involved in that project and some sort of sense of the validity of the claimed outcomes. Were they really as good as the proponent said it was? And what was the experience like for the participants in that particular project? So we, we do an evaluation of that. And early on, I started to realize that 
a common feature of, of these projects, even ones that could claim, you know, some success. A lot of the participants felt like even though it might have been successful, and many of them were not successful by, you know, certainly not if you measure them simply in terms of whether were they on time or on budget, the answer is not even close. A feature of both of those kinds of projects, both the successful ones and the challenged ones, people did not feel like, or let me put it a different way, people felt like it could have gone so much better if the stakeholder management communication piece, particularly right up front, as the thing was framed initially, uh, had been far more inclusive than it was. And I started to realize that as I looked at the pattern of you know, the, the sort of the, the birth of these of these projects, there was this thing that I started to call this argue-in framework, which is basically there's a default set of decision makers, the project manager, they're the people that they report directly, the board, whatever you want to call it. Metaphorically, they're very high up in the organization and uh, and have that that formal official decision making authority. To use your analogy, they sat down at a table and, and made a decision or a sequence of decisions and, and planned out the budget and the timelines and, and who would play what roles and so on and so forth. And the sense when I when we do the interviews in, in the postmortems after these things that we, we go, we, like I said, we get this comment like, well, if so-and-so had been at the table, that decision would have been made that way and the outcome would have been different. And so then you go, well, why weren't they at the table? Well, they didn't have the right title or the right connections or the right, they, you know, they weren't. And so I started to realize that one of these things that so many failed projects, or like I said, even successful ones that still could have been better, what they suffered from was too small a group of initial stakeholders. In some cases, that initial group of stakeholders then set uh, for the entire life of the project, a far too constrained group of stakeholders. It was always too small from beginning to end. And the dynamic of that at the beginning is, and I'm going to be a little sort of blunt and crass here. It's, it, you know, these people are, they're not evil it, or anything even close to it. It's just, it's a habit. It's a reflex. It's an unexamined set of assumptions where they basically went, hey, here's the seven of us. We're the really smart people. We know projects. We know budgets. We know timelines and so on and so forth. And we'll make all the decisions. And, and when somebody comes in and says, well, do you think Diane over there should be a part of this? Well, I don't know. Why, why should she? Like, you know, what would she bring to the table? Right there, we're in the argue-in paradigm, right? The initial uh, decision-maker group is already assumed. Anyone who wants to join that group, who could be argued in, even sometimes by one of those initial stakeholders, trying to argue the other ones to say, you know, I, don't, I think we should bring in a couple of other people, you immediately start to hear of these reports of people kind of needing to argue their way to the table to prove their worth or their validity. Now, that is not 100% invalid. You know, like I said, you can't have an infinite table. You, you do need to make sure that for resourcing perspectives and just for efficiency of decision-making, lots of other things, there needs to be some shape to the number of people. But I started to realize that there might be a better way. And that is this sort of thing that I provocatively call the argue out, which is instead of starting with a very small group and then arguing for every additional voice at the table, you took the opposite basic paradigm, assumed the opposite basic paradigm, which is everyone is at the table and you needed to argue people out. That is, no, no, everyone stays unless you can prove to us they shouldn't be here. 
I want to dig into that in a bit. I, I, I want to first stay on the argue in idea because really well explained. What is the impact on an organization's culture with the argue in approach? Because if it's always the same from your number seven people that are always yeah. generally in those positions, that are always answering things and nobody else gets to crack that code unless they can fight their way up the hierarchy or, yeah. or get in that room somehow. What is the impact on a culture when that happens? There's, there's two enormous impacts on, on organizations and on projects. The first one is that over time, it definitely erodes culture. Because if you look at Dan Coyle's model around trust, purpose, and belonging in, in his book, The Culture Code, in my work, I, I swap out the word trust for safety because I think it's, it's a punchier, more, more impactful word. But other than that, it's, it's essentially the same model. When people start to consistently feel that they, are, that they are not part of the table and there is no formal way from their seat to that table, that second pillar of culture, belonging, is eroded. Because you start to question, well, belonging, you start to ask yourself, belonging in what sense? In what sense it really matters when a lot of the really big stuff that goes on around here, I'm not a part of that conversation. So how, I don't quite get how I belong in any really meaningful sense. So that's the first impact. I think the second impact is the, you know, the kinds of decision-making that um, different people have written about. Uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell in, in, in his book, Outliers, talks about this, this idea that if you don't have candor, someone's going to drive the bus off the cliff and no one's going to tell you because the person who could have navigated you and allowed you to stay on the road wasn't at the table. You've, you've increased the level of risk by decreasing the number of perspectives and its ability to assess risk from, from, you know, from all kinds of angles and perspectives. That seven people can see so many angles. Well, 20 or 30 people appropriately you know, consulted and appropriately involved. Well, the math isn't that hard to figure out. You're just, you're just covering a lot more angles. And if the doors closed, I mean... The organization isn't stupid. People are very smart. They're very situationally aware. So if if you're not only one of those people that should have been in the room for that decision, it's also the people that see the person that should have been in the room and noting themselves going, well, if they couldn't even get in the room and it was about them and they were the subject matter expert, how the hell am I ever going to impact change? How the hell am I ever going to be uh, a catalyst for improving anything in this organization. It has that ripple effect, not only that individual, but also the people that are the spectators. Yeah, it has a, it has a ripple effect and a new term I've been introduced to recently by one of my colleagues, uh, Scott Beaton, he, this, he wrote about LinkedIn to the bullwhip effect. And, and I'm starting to see that this sort of, this amplifying effect that goes on towards the end of these things. Because if we're looking for the roots of silos, the roots of these little toxic gossip groups that, that gather in the little corners and you just put your finger on it because there is nothing that brings people together more than the sense of a common enemy. We all know that. I mean, the psychology and that's rock solid. It's decades and decades old. When people start to feel excluded or threatened or, or, or you know, just from, from a sort of limbic perspective that they are, they are at some risk and they see somebody else who they think might also be at that risk, well, what happens? They glom together like two attractive molecules. You've got these, you know, people, wow, you didn't get in either? No, I didn't get in either. Wow, like what are the... Yes, Oh my God, you want to hear the beginnings of the gossip? There it goes, right there. You become that us versus them culture. 100%. 100%. 
is it a legacy problem? It's, it's absolutely a legacy problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, and if by, okay, I should check terms. If by legacy, you mean we've sort of inherited this, this management or governance model from, you know, MBA programs and, 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 you know, all that. Yeah. All the history that we've had since, you know, the middle of the, of the last century, well, maybe even earlier, maybe since sort of the middle or the end of the industrial revolution ever since there's a certain kind of management or sort of assumed a certain kind of assumed leadership or management model that we've inherited. If that's what you mean, yes, absolutely. That's what it is. I could also see it being people that are moving up the ladder and they, they finally get to that position of a decision maker and they have always been excluded to a point and now they're in the room. So it's suddenly they have the power and the influence. Why would they want to shake a model that they've been outside of are now into and they perpetuate just because now they're the ones that can make decisions. Yeah. So the structure is self-reinforcing. That's really interesting because that also mirrors the experience of a lot of, you know, look at the history of, of immigrant groups in North America, so the waves of immigration. I've done enough reading, you know, that there is a sense that with each new wave of immigrants, once they're in and they're no longer the outsiders, there's a sort of uh, a metaphorical slamming of the door behind them. And they don't want the next group in, right? So you've seen, there's been lots of writing about that, but it, it feels like a similar kind of pattern. That You're right. Having been out for a long time, once you're in and you're solidly in, now you're, you want to you kind of almost protect that sense of being in by slamming the doors. Nobody ever asked my opinion when they were in that position. So now I'm in. Why should I? And I'm not saying that's universal, it, but it's a bit of human nature. Oh, and, and it's probably also, you know, again, when you look at these cultural patterns, the, the waves of immigration, I also don't think it's conscious in most cases, which is why, you know, these, these invisible biases and so on, that's why they're so dangerous, because they're not conscious. Worldviews, learned behaviors, framing, you know, it, it all comes in, into your experience. So let's get into Argue Out, which you were talking about the default is that you have a seat at the table. And then it's about arguing people and selecting them out of the group based on criteria. So why is this provocative? Well, it is because every time I bring it up, I mean, provocative in the sense that every time I bring it up with a client, I kind of watch them. If, if there's a way of reading body language going, when a human being is going limbic and they're, and, they're, and they're retreating back to their overwhelmed fight or flight space, I think that's what I'm watching because they go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, what? What do you mean argue? You mean you want you, your default position is everyone? No, no, that can't work. That no, I mean, come on. You you you're gonna have decision by committees, and you're gonna we're gonna be here for hours, and we you know speed is important here, and and half these people don't even want to be at this meeting, and it's not even their area of interest. I mean, you start the, the arguments against it just start to pile on. It's just an immediate visceral reaction against it. Is it like they suddenly have this idea that they're going to sit in a boardroom with a hundred people that are just sort of talking over each other? Yes. Without any imagination that there might be, for whatever word you're going to use, an approach, a a, a paradigm, a methodology that actually manages that, that there is actually a way of of having a great deal more, uh, a much larger number of voices at the table than traditionally, and still have it be effective. And you're not talking about the entire organization. You're talking about just everybody a decision might touch, I'm assuming. Probably in, in more practice yet. But again, to, just to be provocative. See, so here's one of my issues with, with some of the language around this. A lot of that argue 
in in my mind, there, there's a big overlap, a, a large Venn intersection between the thinking that says people need to argue the way to this table because all the smart people are already sitting here. And this idea of, of, of need to know from that command and control kind of environment, because there's a fundamental assumption that if you had something to contribute to this conversation, I'm the CEO. I, I, would, I would already know that almost to be provocative with you here to say, no, no, I actually do mean every single human being in the organization. And these days, when we talk about stakeholder capitalism in that sense, we might also mean suppliers, customers, uh, you know, all kinds of other impacting and impacted stakeholder groups in the organization. You know, so the, the really interesting part is, is maybe uh, the verb itself, which, you know, in my case, I'm using argue. So, you know, to argue, argue out. And maybe that's where the, where the work lies is in what is the methodology? What's the approach? Uh, what's the, the process for clearly identifying, assuming anyone could be at the table, identifying who shouldn't be there? Kind of prove to me that customers shouldn't have a voice here. Prove to me that the admin team in accounts receivable shouldn't be here. Let's just, before we start just assuming, because it's a, it's a need to know command and control environment, before we start assuming that, should we at least have 10 minutes to kind of look over the entire stakeholder landscape and give a second thought to, to these groups? What would be some of the criteria that would argue people out? Part of it would be sort of classic stakeholder management from change management, right? Which would be, for instance, trying to understand uh, whether you're going to use something like a, a, a racy table or, or some other form of, of, you know, sort of stakeholder mapping tool, trying to understand, for instance, uh, we talk about impacting and impact dead. So one way would be if, if, if we can look at somebody in the organization and after a few seconds of sober thought, have truly, and, and perhaps even maybe doing a little pulse survey, a quick survey or something like that. Like maybe it needs to be interactive and a bit more feedback driven, uh, but still some little lightweight process that determines truly that this person truly is neither, or person or group of people is truly neither impacted by this thing that we're, we're, under, we're considering to, uh, you know, to undertake, and, and nor would they be able to impact it. That is... There's nothing in their role, their background, their training, their history, their nature, anything that that we could see would create a material uh, contribution to it. And for that second one, which is the, not so much the, the impacted, but impacting the people who, who could have an impact on the quality of this of this organization or this or this project. I think some form of survey tool, some some way of. I'd like them to speak. I'd like them to have a voice and say, hey, we're looking at doing this thing. You know, do you want to have a seat at this and kind of tell us, you know, where, how you think you might want to contribute to it? Because we have to remember, again, we can't get hung up on the actual table itself, which imagines this single, large, monolithic time and space thing. It doesn't have to be that way. It could be working groups. It could be very interesting. Uh, you know, we can use Slack. We can use like, there's other ways of having this conversation that would allow people to participate that isn't literally crowding a room full of people and serving them bad sandwiches. As this is an employee engagement workplace culture podcast, I'm always curious how new ideas or, or old ideas impact 
or or could impact the employee experience. So having mm-hmm. an argue out approach, how, what do you see the benefits for the larger organizations, those employees that maybe they don't get a, a seat at the table, quote unquote, yeah. well, but they're I, that considered. That one's easy to answer. Yeah, that one is so easy because if it's a if it's a if it's a project, you could probably analogize this more broadly across the entire organization, not just you know one specific project or another. Uh, is this idea of that the, the you know the fundamentals of, of project management are implementation? The fundamental value of change management is adoption. So if we want to roll out this new management structure, this new software, this new division in a new country, like whatever the thing is that we're doing here. If we got the stakeholder group right, adoption almost becomes a thing that happens automatically. And that's again, back to why we were having this conversation in the first place, because this work comes out of failed change, failed or could have been better change management exercises, where we go like, why, you know, why did it fail or how much could it have been better? We go, oh, look, initially it started with poor stakeholder management. So many of the wrinkles that we saw downstream they could have been avoided. Um, a, if there was some a larger and, and more a, a, a more diverse group of thinkers at the table, and B, once the thing did get rolled out, because people felt like from the beginning they had a voice and a hand in the process. When the thing finally landed and was time to go live, they felt like they were part of the party, and so adoption becomes so much of a simpler challenge to meet than. You know, at the very end going, oh, yeah, tomorrow morning you get a new piece of software. And nothing raises morale, employee engagement more than feeling like you have some skin in the game. Like feeling like you're part of something rather than just somebody that's overlooked, not engaged, never talked to, left alone to do your job. Yeah, no, I love this as, a, as an opportunity for looking at how we can engage our organization rather than looking at ways we can disengage them. Absolutely. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's an amazing book with an amazing chapter uh, uh, called Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull, the, uh, one of the co-founders of Pixar. I, I don't know if it's the last chapter, but it, it, it's got to be in the last one, two or three chapters. He goes into this thing called, I forgot, it's been, a, it's been a few months since I read the book called Notes Day, I think. So yes. every, every sort of juncture on a film has, and, and when you're in theater, it's the same thing. You have notes at the end of the production or the end of a particular run, right? Uh, where every actor or participant in the process uh, both contributes and receives notes on their performance. And so Catmull talks about this thing uh, called Notes Day, which I believe involved every single employee and took months to organize and and to get, you know, even what the topics would be um, for the discussion that day. If I remember it all correctly, he could not believe the engagement the quality of the decisions, the quality of the impact on the organization from that. He, he was, the, the, the quality of ownership of the decisions and then owning the execution of those decisions. One thing to have a lovely day where we all spend, you know, I think it was longer than a single day, but, you know, the, to spend that time together and uh, have some, get some really cool ideas. Another thing to execute them. Well, they executed them too. Why? Because the people were at the table when the decisions got made. They actually, they were the people who made those decisions. So anyways, you know, if, if I could draw down a single snapshot that this much larger tent, A, can be done. It is feasible. There are models where it could be made to work. And B, that it's a good idea, that there is real value in that. I, I can't think of a better story than Notes Day in, in, uh, in Creativity Inc. 
And as a fellow fan of that book, I, I think it turned into a week. I think notes day turned into a week. They, the intention was that it was going to be a day and it just blew up into a week because they just got so much good engagement and candor. Yeah. Everyone wanted a part, which there's a message in that, right? Last question before I get into my final two. It sounds weird, but it'll make yeah, sense yeah. in a minute. No, I got you. So you've told me that this is, argue in versus argue out approach is very provocative. It's people are resistant to it. Leaders are like, oh no, this is onerous and slow yeah. and we're agile yeah. and we want to make decisions quickly and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. How do you convince leaders to adopt more inclusive decision-making? Because that's really what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to this scope or is it just talking about case studies like Pixar yeah I, I think in the end we all know this that you know human beings respond best to stories and I don't I'll, I'll be completely frank I don't have enough stories yet to simply trot out two or three recent examples of an organization that adopted this approach and killed it right like I wish I could um, but I can't so the, the best we're left with at this point are stories you know, there are other organizational stories out there uh, of, of highly inclusive cultures that end up being very, very successful on, on that basis. But that's the best we can do. And then other than that, you know, we, we do go for just trying to help people just see that particular perspective, either a from a benefits perspective of just, you know, imagine the positive uh, impact that this approach would have on a much larger base of your organizational culture than just a select few. And so that's from the, from the upside. And then from the risk management side, the, the money, the time, the agony you could save if adoption to this very expensive thing you're considering uh, were actually so much quicker. And you started to see the, the ROI earlier because everyone is at the table right from the start. Thanks, Clemens. So I ask every one of my guests these two questions. The first one is, what's the best or worst one or the other, it's up to you, whatever's on the top of your brain, employee experience you've ever had. It was before I even started my job at Grand Thornton. Uh, and the managing partner, Dan Little, was here at, the, at our new offices uh, where they were being set up. And uh, if one of us said, hey, I, you know, I, I'd love to drop by and see you. And uh, I think my job started in a month or two after that phone call. And I just wanted to have a look around and meet people. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Why don't, you, why don't you come on up? I'm here right now. I went and visited him and he, you know, and there's all this construction going on all over the place. There's just, there's people trying to get some work done and there's plastic everywhere and half the doors aren't even hung yet. And it's just one of those classic office uh, renovation, uh, you know, sort of interesting scenes, lots of activity, lots of chaos. And we're walking around the space and somewhere on that, on that little walk around the area, he said, uh, and all the sort of main offices, pretty classically, are on the outside. We've got this amazing view of Centennial Square and out in the harbor and all the rest of it. And he said, uh, you know, all the offices are all spoken for. He said, we're still in construction, but we know who's going to be in every one of these offices and they're all spoken for. And I felt my heart sink a little bit. Went, oh, you know, it's, I don't really care because as the kind of consultant I am, I spend most of my time on the road anyways. I'm not often even in an office. But still, it was kind of cool, and, and the view was stunning. And I thought, wow, this would be a pretty inspiring place to work, pretty sweet. And he said, and he walked past an office, and he said, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, except for this one, he said, I know who's going to be in this, meaning me. And um, I found out later on it was his office. So when he, and this is the managing partner for, the, for our business unit, right, for Vancouver Island. You want to figure out a way to create, like, I'll take a bullet full of you type loyalty. Yep, that was it right there. That, that was it living and breathing, you know. 
so yeah, that in, in recent memory, that was about four years ago, that, uh, that, that still makes me emotional to talk about it because you just don't get that a lot. So that was a pretty cool moment. I just had, I just beaded my heart there. I was like, damn, that hit me like right here. So last question, Kalaman's last quest, relationships at work question is, what is one simple action people can do right now to improve their relationships at work? It's got to be feedback. Like where I see relationship. Yeah. You know what? Even one-on-one relationships, but certainly leaders and managers and their direct reports where there's a massive opportunity for improvement and so many just so frustratingly unnecessary fails are in the fact that we too often manage our lives, our conversations, our decisions on assumptions. And it's this thing called in in management school, it's called the sin of checkboxing. You know, I sent the email, check. I I approved the budget, check. And so the one that's often used in the email is, did you check the person actually received the email, that they read it, that they understood it, that they agreed with it, and that they have the capacity and the tools and whatever it is to act on it. Like, just because you did the thing, there's so many managers who just assume because I sent the memo, all magic now happens. Rather than going out into the field or into the space, and I always say, you know, act like a bat, send out the signal, and then listen for this, you know, from a sonar perspective, for the signal to come back, confirm that what you think is true actually is true. So uh, for me, a, a more, you know, sort of question-driven, ask the question, listen for the answer, that, that feedback approach to relationships, I don't know. For me, that's the magic sauce. I like to end on some magic sauce, Clemens. That's fantastic. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. You made me think. You brought up some new ideas that people can really think about in their own organization about inclusive decision-making. Um, argue in, argue out. I, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Russell. I really appreciate you doing this. I think this is a really important topic. And uh, yeah, just support you all day long. I have no problem sharing your stuff uh, when I see it on LinkedIn and other places, because we cannot have enough of these conversations and and your commitment and your work in this is really, really valuable. So I appreciate it. I will say goodbye with a lot of blushing. Thank you, Clemens. I appreciate that. (laughs) All right. (laughs) That is a magic sauce.